0: Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations for Life. Today we're continuing in our series about how the Bible describes the relationship between a husband and wife. So last week we discussed Genesis 3 and how Adam in particular fails to fulfill his role that God had given to him. And today we're going to look at one specific verse in this chapter that comes up in a lot of evangelical circles about the relationship between men and women after the fall. So after Adam and Eve sin and they eat the fruit... God confronts them and the serpent and pronounces a series of judgments upon each of them. First the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. And it's God's words to the woman that we're going to be looking at today.
0: Yeah, so in Genesis 3.16, God pronounces a judgment on the woman for her part in eating the fruit from the forbidden tree. And God says to her, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. And so, the question that we are discussing today, Kathleen, is what does the second part of this verse mean? The part where God says to her, Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you.
1: Yes. And the reason we're talking about it is because some people believe that this establishes a dynamic of ongoing hostility between the wife and the husband in marriage. They say that when God says the woman will desire her husband, it means that the woman will desire to overthrow her husband's leadership in the home. Uh, They also say that the second part, where God says the husband will rule over her, means that as the woman tries to usurp her husband's authority, he, in his sinful flesh, will respond by being harsh and even tyrannical in the way that he treats her.
0: Yeah, so in other words, this phrase they claim sets up a kind of battle of the sexes that an inherent aspect of marriage going forward will be a wrestling match for leadership in the home. And so today, we're going to be asking, is that what this verse is saying?
1: Yes, and the reason we're uh, doing that is because this interpretation has a lot of influence in what the church teaches about women and marriage and what the wife's role is within marriage.
0: Yeah, because this view teaches you know, that inherent to womanhood and femininity after the fall— is some kind of constant desire to usurp her husband's authority. And so submission theology becomes central to what is taught about womanhood. And I I, I call it submission theology. What it is, is it's a teaching that at the core of godly femininity is submission. In other words, at the core of the Christian life for women, in relation to men at least, is all about submission to her husband and to other male authorities.
1: Right. And so to get to this point, um, it's easy to see how you can get there if you think that sinful femininity is all about usurping a husband's authority. So, if that's the case, then when you talk about redeemed femininity, mm. you emphasize that a Christian woman expresses her faith through submission to her husband.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and this is why there are so many, you know, evangelical churches and pastors and ministry leaders that, when it comes to women, quite frankly, it seems like they all they want to talk about is submission. And uh, even more troubling is that this kind of submission theology opens the door wide open to all kinds of, I I would say, all kinds of mistreatment of women at home and in the church. And uh, just a few examples, uh, for example, pastors and church leaders who tell women um, whose husbands have committed adultery or whose husbands are addicted to pornography, or whose husbands are abusing them, well, they just say, you just need to forgive your husband and and move on, that he's the authority in your life, and and so on. Or you have women who've been sexually harassed or even assaulted by pastors or other men in the church, and they're they're usually told, or sometimes told, uh, usually by male church leaders uh, at the church, to keep it quiet. And they'll encourage uh, her not to pursue legal charges. Um, you know the example of Paige Patterson in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that's been coming out lately really illustrates this perfectly. That uh, this kind of submission theology leads very can lead to a very unhealthy dynamic uh, between men and women in the church. Uh, in that case, there was a woman who was a student at the seminary where he was a president, and he's a pretty big deal in the Southern Baptist Convention. and He was a president of the seminary, um, and the woman was a student there, and she was raped multiple times by an employee of the seminary. and When she told him about it, he actually accused her of lying, and he did everything in his power to shut her up because this was threatening his reputation and his ego, and so he just tried to get rid of it. Um, And this was a woman that had come to the seminary in large part at his personal encouragement.
1: Yeah, and you know, Jonathan, there are other stories like this one. Um, Not all of them are as dramatic. Some are. But Mm. there are many stories of women going to church leaders and um, just facing a deaf ear when they're talking about being mistreated by a man.
0: Yeah, and um, and of course, you know, there's a lot more going on, but I do think the submission theology feeds into those kinds of patterns. And I also want to mention that this view has been advocated probably uh, most strongly through an organization that's called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or CBMW for short. Now, I agree with CBMW on a lot of things, um, but over the past 20 or 30 years, with this particular issue, they've had a lot of influence and it's it's some of their key founding members who were the first to really advocate uh, strongly for this interpretation of the verse we're looking at Genesis three sixteen.
1: Right, and so against the backdrop of these organizations and individuals and um, theological approaches to women in in men, uh, women in marriage, and women in relation to men, and specifically Genesis three sixteen as well. Against that backdrop of some of these. We're going to be looking at this verse, Mm. Genesis 3.16, and what we believe this is actually communicating. Mm. Um, So if we look at the verse, the first thing we notice is that these words to Eve are not said in isolation. They're actually right in the middle of a series of judgments that God pronounces on the three participants in the rebellion in the garden. So first, in verses 14 and 15, there's a pronouncement of judgment on the serpent Then in 16, there's the words of judgment against the woman. And then 17 through 19 contain the judgment against the man. So however we interpret Genesis 3.16, we have to keep in mind this context. Genesis 3.16 falls in the middle of God's judgment on all three participants in this rebellion.
0: Man, well well said, Kathleen. And and we also have to keep in mind that this... This judgment, uh, you know, thing that the verses here four to nineteen that this section of judgment happens within the context of the whole fall narrative, which is this whole chapter here, chapter three of Genesis, and you know, not to get too crazy, but we also can't ignore that chapter three here is part of the is part of one of the sub stories that's in Genesis, uh, you know, mainly chapters two to four. Uh, but kind of set up through chapter one as well, and so we have to take that context into account as well. And then finally, there's a whole book of Genesis, and and how you know the, this first sub narrative here in, in two to four, how does it relate to the rest of the book? So all of these things are really important to keep in mind as we talk about even this one verse.
1: Yeah, and then even going beyond that, how does the book of Genesis relate to the rest of the all the other Pentateuch, books in the and the, yeah. the entire Bible, all of redemptive history, and, and I think we'll mention that a little bit yeah. more later on. But um, yeah, so it is going to be challenging in, in <laughs> the context of this short conversation to cover all of this, but um, a good place to start is we can highlight a few key details that are really important to keep in mind from these larger contexts when reading Genesis 3.16. So first of all, we do need to remember that Genesis as a whole sets the backdrop for the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and enters into a special relationship with them whereby they can be saved. So Genesis sets the backdrop of this story mm. by explaining who is this God who has saved them, why he saved them, and what he saved them from.
0: Amen. And, and this tells us why the author basically writes Genesis uh, you know, what is his reason for writing it? And it tells us that, you know, how this book connects to the rest of the first five books, as you mentioned already, Kathleen. Uh, these were all written together, and they're generally called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so we need to read Genesis in relation to these other books.
1: Yeah, and as for the book of Genesis itself, its main point is to show how God works through succeeding generations after Adam and Eve to provide an heir to the promise. Hmm. So in Genesis 3.15... Um, This is the first hint of the gospel. God promises that out of Eve, he will bring an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. So Genesis charts the beginning stages of the fulfillment of this promise through succeeding generations. And it shows Mm. us how time and time again, God intervenes to provide a way forward when human sinful choices threaten to undo the promise. So, Jonathan, in light of these things, where does the section in Genesis 3 and God's judgment upon the serpent, the woman, and the man, where does that come in?
0: Uh, That's a great question. Uh, You know, Kathleen, I I think I I would say that these judgments here that are in Genesis 3, they serve as a preface for the rest of the book. In other words, uh, everything else that happens in the book of Genesis is going to play out the dynamics of these verses. So, for example, when God says to the serpent that his head will be crushed by the offspring of the woman, but he will bruise its heel, well, what we find in the rest of Genesis is that in each substory, there is a conflict, and the source of that conflict is always sin and temptation. And this conflict always threatens the passing of the promise from one generation to the next. And in each case, God intervenes to overcome this threat.
1: That is such a really helpful way of looking at that. I think that's really, really helpful to, to be able to see that same story being played out throughout each little story throughout Genesis. Yeah. And so, for example, in, with Abraham, uh, there are many times when Abraham's and Sarah's sin threaten God's plan regarding the heir of promise because they are meant to have a child who will receive the blessing and who you know will then have a child. And so this yeah. promise will carry on until ultimately we know Christ and um, and so, in these cases, when Abraham and Sarah uh, make bad choices, mm. uh, sinful choices, God has to intervene to ensure that his plan will go forward.
0: yeah. and and this is the same dynamic that happens with Noah, and you know, with the the, the world being so full of evil and 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 God floods it, but he he preserves Noah. And then same thing with Isaac and with Jacob. And throughout the book, um, God is intervening. Um, within each generation, to thwart the serpent's work, essentially, and, and and you know the serpent is the embodiment of sin and temptation, and and God does this in order to protect the one who is the promise bearer, um, which you know that promise He made in Genesis three fifteen, as you as you as you mentioned.
1: Yeah, and He He like reiterates that promise throughout, right? As right, he, with each he generation, makes his covenant. With the the next people along the line right um, and I think that's a great point too it it, it shows us a lot about why uh, about the way that Genesis portrays women mm. so because the story is mainly concerned with the passing of the promise from one generation to the next it's for women it's their marriage and childbearing roles that are mostly in view and this is directly tied to what God says about Eve and to her in Genesis 3:15 and
0: Yeah, you know, if anyone's curious, I'd encourage them go read the Book of Genesis and see how much of the narrative actually is concerned with marriage and childbearing. It's a whole heck of a lot of it, quite frankly, and that tells you that you know that it gives you a hint as to what the author's point is Mm to the whole story. Um, And so, and what you just said, it explains why um, you know why you see as you read the book a common theme throughout is the woman's ability to have children.
1: Yeah, and it's also a a source of threat in the story, Mm, in a lot of the stories. So, for example, when um, Abraham passes off his wife Sarah as his sister, and she's (laughs) taken into another king's harem, and um, this is a direct threat to God's uh, promise and the fulfillment of that promise because she is meant to have a child with Abraham. She's married to Abraham, and she's meant to bear his child, and that will be... That, that child would be the bearer of the promise. Um, and then, of course, even her inability to conceive is also a major conflict in the story.
0: Yeah, and, and then it also explains why, you know, the, the, the lengthy narrative about God's provision of Rebecca for Isaac. Why is that so important to the Isaac story? Uh, well, because of Rebecca's role in, in, in being part of the, the covenant, the passing of the covenant promises to the next generation. And then also, why is is Rachel and Leah's story told with so much vivid detail? Um, As you said, Genesis contains an awful lot about marriage and childbearing because it's telling us how God's words to the woman in 316 are playing out in relation to God's promise to crush the head of the serpent through the woman's offspring.
1: Which is a really exciting promise and a really exciting role to have. Um, So... We're suggesting that the best way to read the verse we're looking at, Genesis 3.16, is by seeing how it fits within the context of the Genesis story. So in that case, what do we make of what God says to the woman, that her desire will be for her husband? As we already said, some claim that this phrase means the woman will have a desire to usurp her husband's authority, that she will want to wrest control of the relationship and the home from her husband. Um, So, Jonathan, what do you think? Do you think this interpretation fits with what we've seen, what we see in the book of Genesis?
0: Um, Well, I I think there are several things to keep in mind about this phrase. And the first one is is that, yes, I, I think, as you said, the overall narrative in Genesis, it should guide how we decide what this phrase means. And what we see in Genesis routinely is that the women who are in the story generally value their role as wife and mother, even when it's really dysfunctional, quite frankly. Um, you know, uh, with Rachel and Leah, for example, they, they want to have kids, um, at least a dysfunction, but they do value their role as wife and mother. And in regard to the women who are married uh, to the heir of promise, uh, they see their role as the childbearer to be vital to God's plan. And so this would be Eve, then Sarah, then Rebecca, and then Leah and Rachel. And each of these women play a vital role in the story in relation to their marriage to the heir of promise and the children that they bear. Um, You know, we don't have time to go into more detail, but I think this phrase, first and foremost, is referring to the vital role that women play as the bringer of life through marriage. She is the hope of mankind, as it were.
1: And Jonathan, this is supported by what happens in the very next verse after this section of judgment. In verse 20 it says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And I find it surprising how the recent interpretation that Genesis 3.16 sets up some sort of inherent battle of the sexes and strife and all that, it ignores the fact that when Adam names the woman, which is a significant act in Genesis, mm. to name something is to speak to its nature, yeah. um, that he names her Eve in reference to her role as the bearer of children. And mm. you would think if the whole point of Genesis 3.16 is to set up some kind of enmity and strife um, you know, inherently in the relationship, Adam might have named her something negative right but right. his name for her fits perfectly with the idea that 316 speaks to Eve's role as the begetter of children and this plays a vital role in God's plan of bringing forth succeeding generations and eventually the promised offspring. Um, and so as you said, she's humanity's hope.
0: Yeah you know in terms of negative naming we even see that with Esau and Jacob you know when when he, when he comes out, Holding onto his brother's heel, he gets named, I think it means like striving after him or something. Grasper. Yeah, you know, and, and, and so certainly uh, people get named negative or have negative connotations depending on the nature of their their uh, their, their identity in the book. And so the fact that, that Eve is named, you know, reference to her, her role as giver of life, I think it provides a pretty good clue as to at least how how Adam and Eve themselves understood their marriage roles and, and going forward. And um, I'd also add that, that if we look here at this whole chapter of Genesis 3, you know, uh, one of my issues with the way that that, 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 that interpretation of Genesis 3.16 suggests with this sort of ongoing, inherent psychological conflict between the man and the woman in marriage, well, the language, one issue I have is that all throughout Genesis 3, the language is, is sensorial. And that's a weird word. I couldn't find a better one. But it just means that it, it relates to our bodily senses. In other words, as you read Genesis 3, all throughout the story, it's always talking about what we're seeing and doing and, fe- and, and, and aware of and hearing. Uh, so, for example, the man and the woman's first awareness of sin after they eat the fruit is described this way. It says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. It doesn't talk about their feelings directly, or it doesn't talk about their state psychologically. It doesn't say that they felt guilty or ashamed or fearful. Uh, It does say these things, but uses the language of being naked to communicate it. And if you look at the judgment on the serpent, um, you know, in verses 14 and 15, well, it's also sensorial, that he's going to crawl on the ground and have his head crushed by the woman's offspring, but he will bruise its heel. And then the first part of the woman's judgment is sensorial as well. She's going to experience very real and painful um, pregnancy and childbirth. And then also with the man, uh, his judgment is sensorial. He's going to till the ground with a lot of pain, pain and toil, and he's going to eat of its fruit only through a lot of sweat and tears. Um, every aspect of Adam and Eve's fall in this whole chapter, and their judgment, is described sensorially, externally, bodily. And so, for this reason, I don't find any justification for suggesting that 3.16, as it relates to the woman's desire for her husband and his dominion over her, is about some kind of psychological, internal grasping for power. I I don't think that the the writer of Genesis writes that way. Uh, I argue, therefore, that when it says the woman shall have a desire for her husband, it should be seen as a positive reference, uh, namely to marriage and sexual intimacy, through which children will be born.
1: Of course, at the same time, we know that uh, <laughs> many women in Genesis uh, and throughout time experience a great deal of suffering and injustice and wickedness through their marriage and the bearing of children. So, you know, you could ask, how can this be a positive statement?
0: Yeah, well, of course. I mean, that's a very good question, right? I mean, how, how can the statement that the woman's desire for her husband will be is, is a positive one? Uh, in light of what we do know about what women suffer, uh, even in Genesis, as it's told to us, or uh, throughout the uh, history of the world. And so we, we can't forget that this statement, that it is coming within the context of God's judgment upon the three participants of the rebellion. And so what I would say is that the judgment that God gives, and the way that we see it play out here in Genesis, is that sin and the ensuing judgment do not wholly eradicate the goodness of God's original design, which we see laid out for us in Genesis 1 and 2. Instead, what it does is it corrupts it. And so the same mechanism that was intended by God to bring nothing but blessing to people uh, that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, it's now a vehicle of human suffering and hardship and death. Mm,
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, So this means that while we can say that the woman's desire for her husband is a good thing and a main source of relative joy and blessing in her life, mm. it will also be the source of suffering, um, injustice, hardship, disappointment, sometimes oppression. And if you look at what God says to the man in the next verse, that's essentially what He tells the man, too. The mm. ground is cursed, and so the man will work the ground, but it will not produce crops the way the ground responded to him in the Garden of Eden. Right. Um Just like with the woman, it will be full of pain and toil, but it's not entirely negative. The ground will still produce food for him and for his family. They will still eat bread. They will still have what they need, but the relative goodness that he experiences and his relationship to the ground will be accompanied by hardship and suffering and eventually death.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do think it's helpful to see how God's words to the woman and to Adam correspond, and this means that when God says to Eve that her desire shall be for her husband, He is saying that she will want to be married, and that this relates to her ongoing role as the bringer of life through marriage. And at the same time, this dynamic, because of sin and, and God's judgment, is going to bring not just the few relative goods that she's going to enjoy about life, it's also going, going to bring a lot of suffering and hardship.
1: Yeah, and so then the second part of this phrase is that God not only tells Eve she'll have a desire for her husband, it also says he will rule over her. Mm, right. Um, so the people that uh, put forth the battle of the sexes interpretation <laughs> say that this is God's way of telling Eve that her husband is going to rule harshly over her, even tyrannize her. Uh, so what should we make of the second part of this phrase? Um, do you think this is indicating this kind of harsh rule by the husband?
0: Yeah, well, again, the first thing to ask is: is how does the writer of Genesis? How, how does the writer of Genesis, excuse me, uh, portray the marriage relationship in the rest of the book? Um, while we do see all kinds of evidence of marital dysfunction and strife, a lot of it, um, as any married couple t- today knows, um, I don't think that we see a picture of harsh rule of a husband over his wife. As paradigmatic of marriage. Mm. Um, as I said earlier, Genesis shows God providing an heir of promise through succeeding generations amidst opposition. But here's an important mm. point. The primary opposition is not between the man and the wife, but between the married couple and sin.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Sin is the adversary in Genesis, not the wife and not the husband. Sometimes the wife is doing sinful things, and sometimes the husband is doing sinful things, and sometimes they're doing it together, and sometimes they're suffering against sin from another person or just from the world, like famine. Sin is the enemy, not the marriage relationship. And this is not to say that we don't see marital dysfunction in the home. Uh, We do all over the place in Genesis. But the question is, what is the nature of that dysfunction? And I would say that the nature of that dysfunction is not in the eyes of the author of Genesis, rooted in some kind of battle of authority that's inherent between the husband and the wife. In fact, in a couple of the key narratives in Genesis, we see the women so eager to produce a child that this will actually lead her and her husband further into sin. Uh, For example, Sarah offers Abraham her servant Hagar for this reason, and Leah and Rachel are constantly playing a game of one-upmanship over producing more children. It's hard to see in these stories evidence of women trying to usurp the husband's authority. Um, And, and, you know, the husband, of course, in these stories, he's completely complicit in all of these activities. But it just strains credulity to me to say that Genesis 3.16 is setting forth a dynamic of inherent enmity and strife between the husband and the wife when I don't see that the rest of the book of Genesis depicts that kind of dynamic as core to marriage any more than any other aspect of sin affects people.
1: Yeah, in addition to this, we don't find much evidence in Genesis of, across the board, women trying to usurp their husband's authority. If this were so paradigmatic to marriage, you would expect to see story after story of women trying to do this, uh, but you don't. And As you mentioned, Jonathan, um, we do see lots of marital dysfunction in the book and throughout the Bible, but it can't be codified into one simple formula of a battle for authority in the marriage and home. The dysfunction takes on all kinds of forms, mm. depending on the people and the circumstances at play.
0: Yeah, and that's what we see, quite frankly, in the book, you know. Um, so, so what I would say is that when God says to Eve um, that her husband shall rule over her, I think we should read this in relation to the rest of the verse uh, here, all, you know, Genesis 3.16, and to what God has already said to the woman. And also, we should read it in relation to the rest of this section here in Genesis 1-4, to where the man is created by God, and he's called to rule over God's creation. You know, same language. It's actually a different word, but very same, very similar idea. Um, and so we should keep this in mind, as I said earlier, that Genesis 3, it's using sensorial language. It's not using psychological language. And so we should be careful not to interpret this word in, in a psychological way. I think that the husband will rule over his wife in the sense, as I mentioned last week, that he is going to be the head of his household and he's going to attend to its well-being, its protection, and its nourishment. So just as the man is, is called to exercise dominion over the earth by tending to it, ordering it, protecting it, seeing to its well-being, nourishing it, so he has to do uh, this same task in his home.
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, great point. And as we mentioned already, the sad thing is that because of sin, this exercise of dominion within marriage and family, um, it will bring some measure of goodness to the home. Mm. But it will also be corrupted by sin to serve as a vehicle for suffering and injustice and dysfunction and, and all of those things. So, um, yeah, like, just like the other areas that we talked about, It does not destroy the goodness, but it corrupts it, and it Mm. brings in a lot of bad things.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, So, well, um, what I would say, Kathleen, in terms of uh, sort of starting to sum up here, is that when God tells Eve um, that she will have a desire for her husband and that he will rule over her, I, I suggest that it's describing the continuation of the covenantal marriage dynamic that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. But as you just said, only now this dynamic is infected with sin and under God's judgment. So what would have brought only blessing and joy and life is now still going to contain some measure of relative good, um, but is going to be corrupted by sin and wickedness and suffering and death to the point that I would say even the good will only serve in the end to bring forth more hardship and death.
1: Hmm, Yeah. And and this is what we see in the book of Genesis. All of the people who come into the story and in their marriages, there's some measure of good. It's not all bad. But then we also see how that goodness is accompanied by sin and and chaos and, and everything. And the amazing thing is that despite all of that, Genesis shows us how God uses marriage and childbearing to advance his plan of grace and redemption.
0: Yeah, and that's really important too, and, and that's what the whole story of the Bible is, is even though human beings become sinful and wicked and make terrible choices and sinful choices, the, the truly marvelous thing is that God still manages manages to bring forward His plan of redemption in the midst of all of that, and He uses these people, and you know, the fact that God can use the dysfunctional marriage of Jacob and, mm, and, Rachel, yeah. and Rachel and Rachel to bring forth his, his ultimate plan, I mean, that's astounding. Seriously. Yeah. You know, and it's not it's not to, to, to make light of the sins of, of the people, it's just to show like, wow, God even was able to turn that situation towards his ultimate good.
1: Yeah, you know, the perilous path of covenantal freedom we talked about last week, that yes. quote from bobink Um, it's very perilous. But it's truly amazing. I mean, it's truly yeah. amazing that God was willing to uh, make that path available to us and that he was willing to walk it too, because he yeah. bore the, the greatest cost in Jesus.
0: Amen. So, if I can sum up, um, I don't believe that Genesis 3.16 is declaring that there's a core dynamic of marriage um, uh, after the fall that that is an ongoing, inherent struggle for authority or leadership in the marriage. I mean, no one would deny that certainly because of sin, there is strife and conflict in marriage. I mean, obviously. But I don't think we should absolutize it and make it central to marriage. In my opinion, uh, to do so is missing the mark. Not to mention that to say that central to femininity and womanhood after the fall is a a desire to usurp the the husband's authority, um, I I think that's unfounded from the witness of Scripture and even history, where throughout time, what we see is women usually under horrible oppression Mm -hmm. and not, quite frankly, not in any way able to really threaten a man's leadership. I mean, sin causes all kinds of dysfunction in marriage. And it's better to have our eyes opened to the multitude of ways that sin has wrecked the marriage covenant, rather than trying to codify all marriage conflict into one dynamic of a wrestling match for leadership in the home.
1: And that's a really great point, just as a side note, because yeah, if you do try to boil everything down to a wrestling match for power in the home, then you're 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 going to be missing out on a lot of other dynamics that are happening, mm. a lot of other issues, you know. Um, if you just have, say, a couple that's longing for intimacy but scared of it, fearful of, of vulnerability, um, and you try to turn that into somehow it's um, usurping authority, well, you're totally missing the point and you're, you're missing the real needs of the of the married couple. Anyway, just a side note.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, we, we didn't get into this uh, this time, maybe we will next time, but it does, what has happened is it can tend to lead to a general uh, atmosphere of suspicion among among Christians in church that, Mm. you know, it's like women are are just ever raised, just super usurp the husband's authority or the man's authority in the church. And I just don't think uh, that's healthy. And I don't think it honors the fact that all women are made in the image of God. And as we talked about at the very beginning, it leads to all kinds of mistreatment of women Mm -hmm. who have been wronged in the church.
1: Yeah, well, and then the last thing to add here is that The great news is that we're not stuck in this Genesis 3 judgment life anymore. Mm. Um, The fall is, you know, the effects still are there. Sin still affects us. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. We're delivered out of an existence where no matter how, how hard we try or what choices we make, death and suffering sin always win out. That's no longer the case. When we believe in Christ and we're saved, we're saved out of this dynamic of death. Mm. And we're new creatures, renewed after the image of Christ. And so this dynamic of death and judgment that defined our lives before is now gone. And we live in God's kingdom where there is a renewed dynamic of grace and life and blessing. Mm. And so the Christian life is not like Genesis 3, not entirely. Um, Marriage, childbearing, all of these things our, and work you know look looking at Adam's curse there yeah all of these things are are different we still suffer under the fall we still experience the suffering and the consequences of sin this weighs on us mightily but it's not the ultimate end for us mm. life is mm. and so though we still struggle with sin we're no longer enslaved to it and we can be free um, We're free from the power of the dynamics of judgment and death that are pronounced here in in Genesis 3.
0: Amen. There's now no more condemnation.
1: Mm.
0: Oh, man. Well, so next time, Kathleen, uh, we're going to be looking at one more important dynamic related to men and women in marriage here in Genesis 3. Uh, we're going to look at what it means uh, to be naked and unashamed, which was that last verse of Genesis 2, and then what happens with that verse, uh, that phrase in Genesis 3, and kind of talking about marriage dynamics with regard to that. So, uh, folks, we encourage you to come back for that one next week. Um, we hope that you all enjoyed this conversation. Please feel free to drop us a line uh, via email at jonathan at crosslife.today.org or through uh, our website. Uh, you Give us any comments, questions, thoughts that you might have, and also please remember that we are a listener-supported ministry, and uh, you can find out more information at www.crosslifetoday.org. That's
1: right, and you can also see past podcasts and, and other information there and catch up on this series if this is the first one yeah. you're listening to. This is actually part of a larger series where we've talked about women in the Bible, we've talked about God as our Heavenly Father, we've talked about a lot of different things like that, mm. so... Uh, You can definitely catch up on those. But until next time, friends, take care and God bless.